Right, hello and welcome along to another episode of whatever this is. Uh, nominally a podcast, I guess, but really, as you know by now, it is simply the ramblings of a middle-aged Scotsman. On this week's episode, I'm going to be joined by Mr. Daniel Rachel, uh, who is an author and cultural commentator and a man very much with his finger on the pulse of all sorts of things. Uh, we're going to be talking about his latest book, Don't Look Back in Anger, The Rise and Fall of Cool Britannia, told by those who were there and with a cast of 68 people who were there, he has left no stone unturned. So hello, Daniel. Hi. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to speak with me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Good stuff. I want to jump straight into it. So the beginning of the book, there's a sort of uh, prologue, I guess, an introduction, where we're introduced to some of the, the 68 people that I've just mentioned that you spoke to. Yeah. And one of the things that is really interesting in that early section of the book is, for me certainly, there, there's a couple of quotes, one from Mira Sayal and one from Gurinder Chada. And Mira Sayal says that in the 90s you had a flourishing of lots of different types of voices being encouraged and accepted. And then Gurinda Chada says in the very next quote in the book, she says, you felt that style and culture and multiculturalism were very much part of a wider Britishness than I had ever seen before. Steve McQueen was making huge strides in the art world. Anish Kapoor and Chris Ophelia both win the Turner Prize. Britain felt like it was inclusive. Now, that leapt out at me, Daniel, because not so long ago, um, Michael Hahn in The Guardian had written an article with the clickbait heading, Don't Look Back in Anger. Did Britpop cause Brexit? So, <laughs> <laughs> so who's who's right? Mira Sayal and Gurinder Chada, who see 90s Britain as being more inclusive and more multicultural and more accepting, or Michael Hahn of The Guardian? What was Michael that, Hahn's uh, argument? Well, if I'm going to be fair to Michael, and I don't like to be fair to Michael Hahn because he writes all sorts of sniffy articles about Britpop. Right. He, he starts off with two or three paragraphs where he's kind of saying, I guess, pop subcultures can create and shift the cultural landscape. And then he says, where did Britpop lead? Uh, did it lead to Nigel Farage and Michael Gove and Jacob Rees-Mogg? And then he says, no, of course not. Um, menswear didn't tell lies about what Brussels was up to. Boris Johnson did. But you cannot help but feel that along the way, I mean, it's a very short article. I mean, it's the dictionary definition of, okay. of, of clickbait. I mean, the thing is, that, uh, I mean, I think there's an argument in the book and the question gets asked, was Cool Britannia white? And I think it, it, by, by and large, it was white. And although there's elements of Southeast Asians that come to the fore, uh, namely who, who you've said with a Mira Sayal as an author, as a comedian, and as um, uh, and then in goodness gracious me and Gurinder Chadha as a as a filmmaker and and ultimately with the success at the end of the early two thousands of Bend It Like Beckham, you, uh, then you have Corner Shop and and Eka and Sonia from Echo Belly. Beyond that, that you you begin a, a little hard push to find people of colour. There's there's a little bit uh, in fashion, but not very much. And and then if you think of all the bands. Uh, I mean, you have Oscar, Oscar Harrison in, in Ocean Colours, in a black drummer. But of the main faces, pretty much everybody's white. And when you look back at all the and when you get beyond Britpop itself and just look broadly across across culture, 
then there's very, very few. It's all it's, it's virtually all white. And, and, and ultimately, I mean, the story in Don't Look Back in Anger ends in 2001 with the the world event of 9-11 and and the the lesser remembered event of the riots that happened in yeah. the, in northern cities you know in leeds and bradford and um and oldham and and clashes with asian youth and uh i i say youth i'm not altogether sure it was just youth and police and, and almost a replica of what we were familiar with from from the 80s you know in in 80 and 81 and 85 and so that idea of so the book challenges the idea of was called britannia white was it also london centric and in many ways it was a i think those probably that that analysis is probably right and i lived in birmingham and we had very much a self-contained scene in mosley and then and and then Birmingham city centre itself, which was incredibly exciting. Uh, but but there wasn't. And I make this point in my in the introductions to the book that I, I there was very little connection with uh, with London, save for, you know, watching TFI Friday or hearing Radio One uh, and, and, and the magazines. But the idea of Cool Britannia, I even question whether I knew what that was in the 90s. That's interesting, Daniel. I, I feel that there are some comparisons between what was happening in those early stages of what would become Britpop and what would become Cool Britannia. And I have a theory that the two things are actually different things, connected possibly, but, but different things. No, absolutely. But I think there's there's a, a similarity with what was going on with Two-Tone. And Two-Tone, I think, did a better job of it in terms of pushing black voices and black faces to the forefront and being much more political. And I think that one of the criticisms I have of of Britpop is that it, it wasn't political enough. You may know from a previous book, Walls Come Tumbling Down, where I trace the history of rock against racism, two-tone and, and then red wedge. So, you know, so po- politics and culture, mid-70s to the end of the 80s. And t- two-tone and, and particularly Jerry Dammons set out with from an ideological point of view uh, Jerry formed the specials purposely trying to f- uh, find uh, he, he went looking for black people and put them with white people and although to it today that sounds uh, that that's not a headline in any way whatsoever in, in 1978 um, it was and and it hadn't been done before and where rock against racism would was making a political statement at the concerts by putting on a punk band and then a reggae band and then the and then the artists from both bands uh, came together on at the end of the night and did a jam and that was rock against racism statement so it's very very political the thing is about cool britannia as a concept as an idea it hasn't got any uh, political meaning or ideological background at all it was a, it's a label and it was a label that was used by predominantly I, I argue the New York um, New York editors who were uh, from places like Vanity Fair and Vogue and Newsweek and then in the slipstream of that was GQ British GQ and each of those magazines and their respective uh, team of journalists looked at London and said there's something really cool and uh, and happening uh, that's very similar in their eyes to what had happened in the mid 60s and they said we need to do something about that so vanity fair famously put liam gallagher and patsy kensett on the front cover under a right. jack bedspread and then did a you know a 30 page 
portfolio of all the major players, whether that was to do music, art, restaurants, film, you know, across uh, politics, across across the gamut. And it brought together undoubtedly this exciting scene of of uh, of culture. And that's where it gets defined. And that's why Cool Britannia is very separate as an idea from Britpop. Britpop solely concerns itself with music. And if you understand and went through that period, you know, it doesn't even include Oasis, you know, and, and what and again, what the tabloids and, the, and then the wider media uh, uh, fixated on was was this was the single battle, you know, in August 95. And at that point, Britpop becomes is used as an all-embracing term and then as uh, when when you have scenes like uh Noel Gallagher going to Downing Street with Alan McGee then Britpop and and Cool Britannia coalesce almost having the same meaning and as we get and I think um incrementally every year since the idea of those two phrases have, have lost their purity and have got mixed up. So, so from my point of view, the idea of writing the book was to set out and not do a history of the 90s because that would be unwieldy and could go on forever. And, and, and books need narratives and they need a drive for the reader to enjoy it and feel like they're following a story. I, I set out to, to, to tell a cool, cool Britannia story, understand what it was. Um, you know, was it something that Tony Blair invented? Was it a new Labour concept? No, definitely not. But within the Cool Britannia banner, you follow the story of Irving Welsh, you follow the story of Nick Hornby, you follow the story of filmmaking, of um, of fashion. And one aspect of that is the story of music and, and particularly Britpop. Yeah, I think that's right. And that, that you definitely... That is very clear in the book. I, I wondered about, to go back to Jerry Dahmer's and something like that, yeah. I, I, originally what I was going to say to you was, well, maybe Britpop did something similar and it, you know, it put forward for the first time in a little while, into the, certainly into that world of indie pop, because really that's what Britpop was, wasn't it? It was indie coming to the mainstream. Yeah. You know, they, these, were, these were indie bands, you know, Pulp were an indie band. Yeah. Um, you know, so, but point I was going to make them was maybe what Britpop failed to do that Jerry Dammers had done was to be explicit about some of the the wider political issues but hearing you talk then I think that's not right I think these were just bands and there was maybe no political element to Britpop at all no, I don't. I, I, I don't think so at all. No, Je, uh, Jerry, Jerry wrote socially conscious lyrics and they didn't. I wouldn't. I don't think they even espoused the political point of view. And it's something that I discussed a lot with Jerry and members of the specials and all the two tone people. Because, you know, the, the format of Wars Come Tumbling Down is similar to Don't Look Back in Anger. And I spoke to 100 people and the politics of two tone was something that was read by the audience more than the bands themselves. And, and, and posthumously, two tone has taken on more of a political identity and is talked about by the artists in those kind of terms but i'm not sure i'm not sure how much of that was was there at the outset but it certainly grew within it but i'm not aware of the politics of britpop at all you no. know if we're, if we're looking to suede and then and then blur and elastica uh, and then and then Supergrass, Sleeper, and then and then the wider Oasis Ocean Colour scene. Who was talking about politics? You know, I mean, there was, yeah, people talked about Tony Blair, 
and, and said, we need, we want change. And here's somebody that understands music because he's coming to the Q Awards and he's coming to uh, the Brit Awards and he comes to Radio One and he seems and he listens to, excuse me, he listens to Oasis in his car. But there's nobody backing uh, politics directly. Uh, I mean, there's there's the figure of Darren Kalyanuk. Who, who works in John Prescott's office and he, he sets out to try and get people to align themselves directly with Labour and by then new Labour. So he, uh, as people will know, you know, he, he reached out uh, because Damon uh, Alban said that he wished Tony Blair was a, me- a member of Blur. And, 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 you get, and there's a lovely little vignette that gets told where Peter Mandelson tries to cancel the meeting of Damon coming in to meet uh, Tony Blair and John Prescott because he's he fears that the press will pick up on the idea of Tony Blur. <laughs> but, the, uh, but Mandelson actually tries to get the the, the meeting cancelled. But Damon does come in and he does meet um, Prescott and and Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell. And likewise, Jarvis Cocker went down to a meeting on Whitehall just to see what it was about and get a flavour of it. And again, listeners will know how he how he eventually himself um, was was trashing his own life and ended up in New York. And and somebody tracked him down in New York. And and not uh, Noel didn't go to any political meetings he went to he went with you know Maureen Lipman and Lenny Henry and Nick Hornby and all the other celebrities that went to Downing Street but uh you know I, but I'm with Noel who, who wouldn't given an invitation <laughs> to Downing Street want to go and have a sniff around the house you know <laughs> so so but no in terms of espousing views and you know beyond this is the man the you know back this guy no it's not uh, Britpop's not political at all, but there's a no. but there's a there's a social conscience and there's a patriotism that is that is massively inherent with, within the music of the time, and that really more than swayed comes comes through to me in Blur and and the lyricism of of Damon and the the look of Blur and and the idea of an in, an Englishness uh, to, to celebrate. But, uh, but also to question uh, and and to look back at our past and to and to kind of in opposition to the to the to that idea of a, of Americanization that Damon foresaw was coming to this country in the same way as Brett did and we and we and, and that gets us into that that the, the pivotal link of Justine Frischman between those two bands doesn't it well yeah and I, I want to come to Justin, that's that, that's a nice segue actually, Daniel. But let me let me pick up on that idea just for a second about the kind of looking at the past. That leads me to not too long into the book. There's a, a chapter called A Bloodless Revolution, which is about the roots of Britpop and the Union Jack and grunge, and of course Morrissey's appearance at the um, Madness gig at Finsbury Park plays a, a, a crucial role in that. And there is something about what happens with the Union Jack during the 90s, which is really interesting, right? Because we start off with Morrissey at Finsbury Park. And for people who don't know the story, Morrissey comes on, he's made this album called Your Arsenal, which has a song called National Front Disco on it. And there's a line about some football hooligans which says, uh, we are the last English, truly English people you will ever know. And he comes on in front of this huge uh, backdrop, which is an old Derek Ridgers photo of two skinhead girls. Hmm. And he's doing what Morrissey does, uh, he's flouncing, he's pirouetting, and 
England for the English. England for the English, and at which point he then comes onto the stage draping himself in a Union Jack. And it's it's an interesting image, because when you see that image, one of the things that gets lost in the telling of that story, I think, is the fact that Morris is wearing a gold lamy shirt. Right? So <laughs> it's, it's not like he was there, you know, in a kind of slightly battered Fred Perry and a, a, a pair of steel toe cap Dr. Martin boots. You know, he's wearing a gold lamy shirt, which is a kind of nod to Bowie and Jobriath, I guess, and glam rock. And goodness knows why he's doing it. But the audience don't like it. The audience don't like it, and particularly the skinheads in the audience don't like it, and there's coins getting thrown, and Morrissey ends up flouncing off stage. And then a decision is made to put that on the front cover of the, the following week's NME. Yeah, flying under the, the head flirting with disaster. And what, what do you think about that? Before, before I move on to what some of the people in the book say about the yeah. Union Jack, what do you think about that particular incident? It seems to me to be quite a pivotal part of the story to be perfectly honest no absolutely and you're right to pick up on it and, I, and, and i've watched the footage of that concert i didn't go and uh and you know the context is and the, the critical context is madness and in 79 madness were accused of being uh fascists of being neo-nazis and because there was connections that suggs had with a uh, with thingy was it from was it uh, uh screwdriver was it was yeah it, um, ian stewart uh, Ian Stewart and and um, and that they were seven white guys and and uh, they dressed as skinheads and they didn't come out and say we they were anti-racist they just they believed that the music should speak to themselves so there's a whole controversy around madness eventually madness issued a statement uh, that was published to 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 say you know we're called madness we're named after Prince Buster song we play Prince Buster songs you know blah 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 we tour with black artists you know there's not a problem uh, but to but madness have always had. Uh, as you know, a skinhead following and factions of that following are, are um, have, an in, uh, have a troublesome element for sure. For and sure. Uh, um, so Morrissey is playing to that audience um, and and there's a sensitivity amongst Madness fans to anything that's suggestive of right wing uh, uh, uh you know, uh, I thoughts and ideas, and you know Morrissey come has that Union Jack ready on stage. It's his, and that that was that was an aspect of that concert. You know, did it was it thrown on stage and he picked it up? Did he walk on with it? And I think watching the footage, you can see he comes on with it and puts it on a riser at the back. So he knows he's he's going to do that for sure. And like you say, the Derek Ridges uh, photographs, he he was courting something. Um, but a gold lame shirt is certainly not is not rude boy attire. <laughs> so he, well, he deserved he deserved the uh, he deserved a few things cork bottle cork cork for sure. But he's singing. But but it, it's it's very important the lyricism of of him as a solo artist. A, you know, Asian in a rut, Bengali platforms. You know, um, and there's a there's a lot of uh, he's playing with notions of patriotism, Englishness. Uh, and nationalism, uh, and 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 that does not go down well. And 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 as as with all these things, and largely the story of the 90s is is what the press make of it and how the media react to it and turn it into something. And as you rightly say, they turn it into the the fascist act, you know. And at one, uh, two years later, D- Damon's on the on the front cover of Face with a superimposed Union Jack. That's cool. A year before that. 
Brett's on the front cover of Select, superimposed Union Jack behind him. That's cool. You know, so it, it's a strange one. Meanwhile, you go to a Paul Weller concert and he's got a Union Jack draped over his over his amp. And that and and then, you know, and then later Noel following those footsteps. And there's the heritage that takes you back through the jam and back to the who and the kinks and the Union Jack flag. And 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 the, the, there's uh, a definite duality in Don't Look Back in Anger, which is the story of the flag in culture and the reclaiming of the flag from what was definitely a, a symbol that was owned in the 80s by the National Front and the British movement. Uh, um, and at the same time, there's the story of what was happening behind the scenes of the Labour Party and left wing thinkers and think tanks such as Demos, where there was an attempt to redefine Britishness. Now, then that sounds quite an odd thing in itself until you realise that historically countries define how they are perceived. So in the 1960s, Canada uh, invented the maple leaf uh, to, yeah. as their as their de- defining symbol of their nation. 1801, the Union Jack is is made part of our flag. Um, what what these people were saying was culture should be reflective of the now as well as your historic and uh, past. And the the prime example would be how Italy do it. Italy are great. Uh, ancient Rome and, uh, and and all the artists that go with it, but they also celebrate Gucci and uh, and their football team and whoever else. And and the, the thinkers in Labour were going, we will do that. We will redefine Britishness, and that includes reclaiming the Union Jack and making it a, a symbol of pride. And 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 that story runs parallel to what happens in culture. So when it converges. Around that, around '96, or you know, Euro '96, Jerry Halliwell's dress, David Bowie's Alexander McQueen frock, uh, uh, frock coat on, uh, on the cover of his album, Noel's guitar. That that's a coincidence, but it but it merges a, mo- a modernism, and that's where the idea and and the mis I would say the misunderstanding largely of the the Blair Oasis. Uh, annexes is is it's not it's not a manipulation it's a convergence of two of people coming from the same thing which is that britain is modern and we celebrate it for what it is part of the problem around the union jack now with the history of you know or with the benefit of hindsight is that when i was a young man during this period so i'm in my 20s at this point my early 20s and for me the union flag just looked cool yeah, right? it, it was just a cool thing because exactly as you point out, you know, the who and the jam. Right. Great. Um, and I didn't really associate it with some of the things that maybe it had become wrapped up in thanks to the rise of the NF in the 70s. Right. It, what, that link with the far right wasn't as explicit or extreme by the time you get to 92, 93, as it maybe had been in 73 and 83. So it, it's tricky, right, because if, if we don't understand the context of these things and one of the things that i have a a question mark over is in in the book during during this chapter brett anderson obviously has always been consistent and not liking any of this stuff and and explicitly not liking what the the select magazine front cover did and he said about that 
There's a quote here. I was angry because the Union Jack was very much seen as a nationalistic symbol. It was ugly and not very suede-like. It was almost like I was saying, Yanks go home. I would never say anything as idiotic as that. And then he goes on a little bit later, Daniel, to say, this is what journalists like to do. They're slightly obsessed with creating scenes, finding the new punk. All you have to do is look at the grouping of bands included. He's talking about the select front cover here. Suede, Saint-Étienne, Denim, The Auteurs and pulp. I wonder, with the Union Jack looming so large in the story, were people really reclaiming and repurposing and turning their back on jingoism, or were both things happening at the same time? Were there people who were absolutely using the Union Jack, you know, to kind of put a Britain as best message, and then were there people who were reclaiming it? Well, uh, uh, jingoism is the key word, and that select feature when you open it up. You know, who are you kidding, Mr. Cobain? And Dad's, right. ar- Dad's army kind of um, graphics, and and all the jingoism within that article by those select journalists. You know, it, that, that's that's as jingoistic as you could possibly imagine, and it's them um, trying to bring something together. Um, that you know, and as Jarvis says in the book, he embraced that at the time because they'd been out in the wilderness for so long as a recording band that they, they felt that it was good to be at least they were being talked about and, and involved in something. And with as as we know with Jarvis's lyricism, he, he, uh, that idea of the bloodless revolution was firm in his in his uh, songwriting. And so you think of songs like Misshapes and common people and and so many tracks on different class he he wanted and embraced and wanted something to happen i mean he 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 then feels that the whole thing goes um completely wrong and he's and he's let down by what 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 happens but at that point he's on board for certain and um you know it's it's interesting with uh brett because brett has to disassociate himself with with Britpop and the, and what that becomes because because they're usurped by Blur and Blur become far bigger and far better and more successful at, at executing the idea, you know. That, um, and I know how much I've I, I've read both of Brett's books and I and I think he writes beautifully, particularly in the first one, and 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 I understand where he comes from, his backgrounds and but the way he writes and presented Suede was not as direct and um and centered in in englishness as i think he thinks he, they are it's more oblique but damon and blur certainly did that on modern life is rubbish and uh, and then and then on part life and then to lesser extent on well equal extent actually on great escape and uh, so that they have to disassociate it themselves and also the kind of music the melodramatic music that they made um and and bernard butler wrote wasn't the style of it and, and and yet they end up with the with their uh third album making a very Britpop st- sounding style album which firmly sets themselves within it but as brett says they weren't invited to the party and they didn't feel <laughs> part of it and he's right they didn't feel part of it i wonder if i can take us back to this idea of cool britannia for a second daniel just just because there are two quotes in the book that that really leapt out at me when I was uh, I was reading it first time round. So I'd written a, an article on the site about Brett's latest comments about Britpop for the new book. And one of the things I said was, and I, I think actually looking at this now, I think I've kind of over-egged this particular pudding. But I said that 
Cool Britannia was in some ways a branding exercise, an attempt yeah. to shift attitudes and to drag Britain from a place of self-loathing and near fecklessness thanks to the economic strife of the 80s and the worst aspects of Thatcherism. It was in many ways Harry Enfield's loads of money come to life. That wasn't <laughs> the intention, of course. The intention was to foster creative energy, entrepreneurial capitalism and national pride in order to re-energise the country and put Britain centre stage globally. Right. So that was kind of, I mean, I think that's quite a simplistic way of looking at it. But that, that <laughs> loads was, of money. Loads of money. Um, yeah, anybody under 40 has got no idea what's going on now. Um, but interestingly, after I'd written that it was when I started diving into the book properly yeah. and very very early on in the book there are two quotes one from Irvin Welsh and one from Tracy Emin and they're talking about you know kind of the early 90s and Tracy Emin says how did I get here today the enterprise allowance thank you Margaret Thatcher uh-huh. and Irvin Welsh says one of the biggest humiliations for me coming from the left and a socialistic <laughs> tradition was realizing that rather than being one of the ones who would go down I was one of the cunts who would thrive <laughs> under Thatcherism now here we have an issue, right? Here we have an issue. We've got um, people in the creative industries who really quite often universally stand in opposition to some of those uh, less liberal ideals that, 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 that are, exist on the right of the political spectrum. But both haven't acknowledged that some aspects of what happened under Thatcher's Britain directly led to what became Cool Britannia, their individual success, and probably helped to foster what became known as Britpop as well. How do we deal with that? Yeah, no, no and it's great you picked out those uh, those two um, quotes. Uh, yeah, no, Thatcherism is so important to, to all of it, and, and of course you have to remember uh, that Cool Britannia happened under the Conservatives. That's right. And, and Virginia Bottomley, who was uh, Minister for Heritage in 1996, issued... Uh, six different press releases, each of which were read out in the House uh, 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 and they were all titled Cool Britannia and had various different arguments. Um, Tony Blair never said the words Cool Britannia and and Alistair Campbell, he, he was more into the idea uh, uh, and, and then particularly the scriptwriter and speechwriter and advisor to Tony Blair, Peter Hyman, who is when I was talking about the Union Jack earlier and Demos and left thinkers was, um, you know, had the idea of the project. So to, to, to wrap that up, I mean, Labour inherited the idea of Cool Britannia, but what you originally said and what you originally wrote gives the impression that there's, that there's people thinking about Cool Britannia as a concept and an idea that can be used and, and, uh, and used to manipulate situations is I don't think anybody uses Cool Britannia as an idea for those means whatsoever. It's all fluff and uh, and journalistic impressions. Apart from those press releases from from the Conservative Party, nobody's using uh, using uh, Cool Britannia as a lever for anything really. It's just it's just people wrapping up people within it. But the the the, the question, Margaret Thatcher, is all important, and to bookend. The latter part of the 90s, before we deal with the, the early 90s, is is t- when Tony Blair is prime minister. Of course, uh, Margaret Thatcher comes to Downing Street on several occasions and is an advisor. I mean, that, Tony Blair says in the book, "Don't make," and, and Alistair Campbell both say, "Don't make more of that than than it really was." But but it but to have a Labour mi- leader after 18 years of, of Conservative power uh, using 
this divert, uh, divisive figure for advice and posing for pictures with her. Of course, a, a large reason for the reason for, for New Labour sweeping into power in the dramatic way that they did was because they had to win conservative votes. They had to bring over a class of people to Labour that wouldn't traditionally vote for them. And they were hugely successful in that. But, you know, I was in my 20s in the in the 90s, as were most of the key figures in Britpop. And we all grew up, uh, as, uh, as you did, Paul, uh, under, under Thatcherism. We were the kids that went through that. And it, uh, I'm sure it's different in Scotland. But where I grew up, Thatcherism was was lauded as a great thing. And it was going to ch change Britain. And we were educated and, and uh, into the idea that we should be Thatcherite in our opinion. Now, we, we, many, many people reject that as an idea, but what was harder to shake off uh, uh, was the idea that you had to make good for yourself in the in in the situation you were now for many people that meant make money and 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 then make more money from the money pool that you've created and keep on doing so for other people you're left with nothing and 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 you have to salvage from the wreckage what you can and make good that's what tracy emmons talked about that's what noel gallagher talks about it's what alan mcgee talks about it's what urban welsh talked about and it's what so many of the artists of this period, they're 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 having to make react against the, the yeah the diversive the, the the divisiveness and the effects of of a conservative government, but you can't get away from the fact that that that, that, that is what Margaret Thatcher and her party would have applauded, you know. And I I went on the Enterprise Alliance as well at the end of the nineties because I was in a band. I was in you know I've been in a band with, with Simon and Damon promotion Colour Scene and. Uh, and and I wanted to continue playing and it was impossible on the dole. And but if you could prove you had a thousand quid in your bank account um, and you could put up with uh, somebody coming around your house every two or three months saying, show me your projected accounts the next year, then you could get. I think it was about 42 quid or 44 pounds uh, in, uh, secured and you didn't have to go and sign on. And so that gave you a year of playing your guitar without being hassled. I was living with Simon, 92, 93. He'd written virtually all of Moses Shoals with Steve um, and the Craddock and, and at least half of what of the of the tracks that were going to end up on marching already. And they were signing on like me every fortnight down the dawn. We all were in Moses. It was ridiculous. And and you and you, you've been you, you're in the in magazines and newspapers. And you've, you, you're working damn hard. I mean, Ocean Colour Scene went in that studio, Bob Lamb's old studio in Kings Heath, where, uh, you know, the old producer UB40, they were in there all day and all night um, recording. Steve learned how to work a desk, um, an eight-track desk that he got off, and the, the guy from Go Disc blagged that. And the, they were writing and writing and writing. There's so many demos in that period. And then produced up. You know, and and then they and then playing gigs uh, that they weren't meant to be doing because they're being dropped by MCA. And yet, despite that real work ethic, they were under threat of having no money whatsoever because the doll were trying to take it off them. One of the other things that I'd like to get your your thoughts on, Daniel, is there's a chapter in the book about kind of lad culture, <laughs> yeah, and ladettes and. So to put this into some kind of context, I, I have an odd relationship with the, the, the idea of lad culture and the new lad. Because now what I'd like people to believe about me 
was that I was always quite enlightened and I was always <laughs> quite right on. But actually, I have very vivid memories of you know my flat when I was a student in Paisley in the 90s. And I would get Loaded magazine every month and I would pull out the, the centrefold. And then what I would do is I would have them all over the walls of my student flat yeah. in my bedroom. And in between them would be other sort of images. So maybe they would have a picture of Michael Caine from the Ipcrest file or, yeah, right. you know, whatever. So it was this kind of blending of 60s mod culture along with ladies in provocative underwear and yeah. i'm not entirely sure there's anything unusual or too awful about that but it doesn't sit with the image of myself that i'd like to portray to the world now of being you know incredibly right on but the the, the, new, the new lad thing is really interesting because there's tim southwell who's one of the co-founders of loaded magazine he talks in the book about this and about um, an arena article called the reinvented man which is kind of the birth of the the, the phrase the new lad yeah. And Southwell finishes off by saying that in his article on it, he says the new lad is a distinct improvement over the new man who's a bit of a wimp and who women don't fancy anyway because he's a doormat and over the old lad who's just a George Best lookalike. Get in, get it out, get down the pub to tell your mates, though maybe he's just a sensitive old man, just a bit more cocky, sharp and witty. Now, that is kind of the image that I would like to have had of myself in the 90s, <laughs> that I was cocky, sharp, witty, you know, I was I was Terence Stamp, I was Jarvis Cocker, I was all things to all people. But interestingly, that slightly acceptable face of New Lad didn't really last all that long, right? I think the first edition of Loaded is sort of 93. Yeah. And by the time we get to 96 and Euro 96, Lad culture has simply become for me anyway and I, I want to know if you think I'm right lad culture has been usurped by football hooliganism and there's a kind of beery and quite openly sexist thing has replaced the idea of a new lad or have I got it completely wrong the thing is that loaded was sexist it quite blatantly it was, yeah. it was a it was the depiction of women for their for their bodies and their bodies only for tit, for the purposes of titillation and just showing multiple breasts and whatever else and <laughs> those girls weren't being interviewed and being espoused for their view of uh, whatever their artistic endeavour was, it was just get them in some provocative clothing and get them on the front cover, you know. And all the and the brick pop girls played up to that to a degree, or they were or they were um, manipulated, you know. Sonia Madden talks about that being on the front cover with a Jurgen Teller shot of uh, you know, and she's got a few buttons undone, and and then when they appeared on top of the pops in school uniform, you know, that kind of thing was done innocently, but it was the way that it was then used and manipulated yeah. by the press and the media, you know, and then Damien Hurst directs Country House, and the, oh. and, the, and the treatment for the video is Benny Hill, and and and, and Benny Hill, i.e., you run around the stage chasing page three models and 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 trying to grapple their breasts, you know. We we the nineties and and, and the, was it was was a replication in many ways of the of where the seventies Britain had been, and it's and you can see it in the fast show. 
and uh, which I, is the funniest, one of the funniest programs ever, comedy programs ever been. But what, but what the, but what the veneer of of what Paul Whitehouse was doing and Harry Enfield and Charlie Higson and that lot was, it was, was it was ironic, and that's the key word in the nineties, isn't it? There's, everything was done with irony. David Baddiel as the as the comedy is the new rock and roll, and you know I, I'm yeah. into pornography, I'm into beer. <laughs> And I'm in, you know, I'm into women and I'm proud of it and I'm going to say it and talk about it. And it everything and fantasy football, it's all done as irony. But the thing is, ultimately, it just it just it's just the recreation of it, <laughs> because I think as as many studies have shown that irony often doesn't do anything. It just it just gives you satisfaction. The thing that you're seeing, which is a load of women on tottering heels running around a room and that are oh, that's what women are for. And, and, in, and, and in, in, in my scene in Birmingham, it, uh, it was exactly as you describe it. The loaded magazine pullout was was pasted all over, you know, certainly up at Ocean Colouring Studio. You know, that's how Steve was. Steve was a lad. I, 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 and, and upstairs there would be um mauling over over the the loaded magazine sent you know center pages you know which you know wasn't to my taste and it wasn't something that i read i wasn't into it at all and it wasn't it certainly wasn't something that you'd associate early on with brett anderson but then you get as he's in don't look back in anger you get damon in loaded magazine talking about going down on the queen and when women have got the painters and decorators in and whether it's better to to be working on a women's breasts at that point of the time of the month and and all lurid acts that he's going into great detail and at the same time you've got footballers like Steve McManaman and Robbie Fowler uh talking uh in such derogatory terms about the the women that they've been with and and one by one all these great figures of the 90s go uh, are lured into talking in this kind of way and uh, now I, I I play football every week with James Brown who is also the co-founder of Loaded that's right J- James will tell you that it, it, no no it wasn't but they uh, but he uh, it wasn't sexist but their their remit uh, self-defined remit was to put the breasts back in Britain. You know, that's, <laughs> that, that's what James, that's James's phrase, you know. So, you know, from, a, and, and what I thought what was really important for me in the book was one year you have to uh, tell the story of lad culture and loaded that, and ladettes and the girly show and, yep. and all that came with that. But it was equally as important to talk about uh, the, the strong representation of women uh, and and what was happening with girl power and to tell the story of the Spice Girls. Again, the Spice Girls aren't Britpop, but, but they're, they're part of Cool Britannia. And and although people laugh at the, uh, uh, you know, at the idea that the Spice Girls could be espousing any political view, what transpires is that the influence that they had as role models um, for a younger generation and role models being women, five women boldly leading a band and having views and, not, and never being uh, apologetic about it, inspired a, a masses, thousands of people. And, and again, the, the, at the top of the conversation, you mentioned Gurinder Chad and Mira Sayal. There are two people who, who backed and, and speak really um, proudly of the achievements of the Spice Girls. And of course, then you get the nutty thing of uh, Ian McCulloch and Tommy from Space and Simon from Ocean Colour Scene making a record with the Spice Girls for an in, for for the official England World Cup song, co-written with Johnny Marr for World Cup '98. That that's a very cool Britannia moment. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think, you know, I, I actually am a big fan of the Spice Girls. I think they've... Oh, yeah, right. Oh, I, I really like the Spice Girls. I think there are so many of their singles. I mean, I'm, you know, Did I don't own all the albums. I, I bought some of the singles at the time. I bought yeah. Two Become One. I think Two Become One is uh, about... Christina, a... <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe I'm a new skinhead, Daniel. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe I should start my own magazine. Um, but yeah, the, the thing about the Spice Girls that I think is really interesting is, first of all, some of those records are genuinely brilliant pop songs. Right. Like they're really great pop songs. I mean, the production is excellent. You know, they're romantic and they're fun <laughs> and all the rest of it. But the other thing is that girl power, for all that there might not have been a particularly clearly defined philosophy behind what girl power was other than just you know doing whatever you wanted to do yeah it's a more overtly political statement than lots of the supposedly serious bands were making well i guess so and i i've bought a few spice girls books uh for, for the purpose of this book i i've never i've never owned a spice girls record but i did buy the first album before i met melanie c uh, and i got it signed as well so it's quite, quite ah you see but, but i did a uh, but you know, and I met and I met the people behind the scenes, the Spice, the Spice Girls, and the and the the the, uh, the 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 PR people, and how the manipulations were working to understand all of that, you know, which all ends leads to Matthew Freud, which is another big part of the story. But you know, reading those books and the annuals, there are explanations of girl power for sure. But again. You know, everything's got roots and, and girl power goes back to the riot girl movement. It's an American invention. Then it come it comes back in through shampoo and their single girl power. And that's stolen by Jerry, which Mel, Mel C admits in the book. Uh, and th- so there is a point of view, but it's very, very mixed up. And, and, yeah. and they're as leery and as loud and uh, as 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 anybody. And, and you know, they, they did their first interview ever on the girly show. And and you know, and then they're they're defining themselves often in how they're appealing to men and 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 being equal to men. And it's not, you know, it's 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 a version of feminism, I guess. But that you know, uh, but p- people make the arguments. They they're not exactly people that would have read Simone de Beauvoir or you know, um, uh, you know, people like that. But I, actually, I, I wouldn't put it part. I would, actually, I, I reckon Jerry Halliwell probably did, and and then she just filtered it into an accessible '90s way of talking about it. I think she's a very bright woman, and uh, and yeah. So I mean, I you know, I wasn't fussed about the Spice Girls. I didn't care two hoots about them in the '90s. I didn't like their records at all. I was into Oasis and Blur. You know, that's where the good record making was happening, not Spice Girls, for God's sake. But uh, but I tell you what, they were addictive when they were on TFI or whatever else, I'd always want to watch them. And of course I was, re- I thought it was great. You know, like I, I asked Simon, what was it like when you did the record with them? You know, you made a record with, um, you know, you're a mo- you kind of, Steve had made you into a mod band. What you made a record with the Spice Girls. He said, you know, I didn't, he said, I was older than most people. He was like four or five years older than, than the main players. He said, I didn't have that kind of cool thing that, that, um, that a lot of the Britpop stars were meant to have. He he just thought, why not? They're a good laugh. It's something to do. Be good fun. And and yeah, and why not? I guess that's maybe a good place to to end things, Daniel, because that that's the nineties, right? In lots of ways, it was a good laugh, and there was things to be done, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, look, Daniel, th- thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. It's it's, it's really really generous of you. And uh, again, before we started recording, I said it, but I'll, I'll I'll say it now so that there's a public record of it. The book is 
I mean, it's beyond fantastic. It is such a great read. And I mean, I cannot imagine how much effort and work must have gone into producing it. So th- thank you so much for your time and for the book. Uh, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. And it's, it's, uh, th- thank you. For, actually, it's been good talking about music because I've <laughs> done lots of kind of different interviews for this book and, and stuff. And, and uh, oddly, not, not many people have wanted to talk about the music. Oh, well, that's great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, thank fun. you, Daniel. Cheers. Line up. Line up. Single file. Single file. Quick march left. Right. Left. Right. Hi, hi. You can go, but be back soon. You can go, but while you're working, this place I'm pacing round until you're home, safe and sound. Very well, but be back soon. Who can tell where danger's lurking? Do not forget this tune. Be 